Welcome to Prism Presents. We're your hosts, Sophia Osborne and Vivian Lee, and you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded, ancestral, and traditional land of the Musqueam peoples on UBC Vancouver campus. We're so excited for today's special Fun Drive episode of Prism Presents, a radio show dedicated to bringing you readings and conversations with writers from around the world. If you haven't heard of Prism International, we're a quarterly literary magazine based on the UBC Vancouver campus, and our mandate is to publish the best in contemporary writing and translation from Canada and from around the world. Today, we're here to get you in the Valentine spirit, and we'll be sharing some beautiful writing about love from the amazing students and faculty of UBC's creative writing program. But before we get into our first reading, we want to take a minute to talk about how you can support CITR. CITR is an amazing community where anyone can come and get free training and get on the air. CITR airs 90 unique radio programs hosted by about 180 people and counting. We came to CITR with the idea for this radio show, and they were so supportive, giving us training to help us execute our vision. You have such an amazing time making this show, and it really means so much to us. But CITR needs your help. We are trying to reach our goal of $20,000 to get a new transmitter so that we can keep broadcasting, sound better, and future-proof our signal. So if you can, please make a donation to our annual fund drive. Head over to citr.ca slash donate to donate and also to get some really cool swag. There's a CITR lighter, wine glass, notebook, and more. That's citr.ca slash donate. Now on to our lovely readings about love from students and faculty of the creative writing program here at UBC. Hi, I'm Sherita Warner. I teach interdisciplinary forms and poetry in the School of Creative Writing. I'm excited to read you some love poems today. The first poem I'm going to read is from my newest collection, Test Piece, and it's called Crushed Velvet. Crushed Velvet. Three women come toward me now up the city block in matching citrus tones. Crushed Velvet. On the off chance of catching a wayward spark, I swerve into their path. Lacking fluency, I fail to register. Desire, a material time turns outside in. This is not the first time this trend has cycled through in my lifetime. Across temporary scaffolding, flowers whirl on vines like sheets through drier portals. I drift in and out of propped shop doors, obey the change room sign by pulling the fine mesh bag over my face to safeguard the garment from the makeup I'm not wearing. In the mirror, a sapling wrapped in burlap against a wintry backdrop. When I remove the gauzy layer, I've doubled in age and it's spring again. At the apothecary, I let the consultant test samples. Days, touchlessness, reversed. After rinsing me under the lukewarm water, she makes a tidy package with the towel, unwraps the gift of my own hand. The second poem I want to read is for my very good friend, Emily. Uh, We have lived in different cities for most of our relationship, and yet we keep this sort of long-distance love going. This is called Poem for Emily. Dear friend, I'm thinking about synchronicity again. I mean, what complex combinations and interlocking mechanisms in the great bank vault of the universe would have to tumble awake to make standing together beneath the glass bottom pool on Beach Ave a reality? Whip kick of ghost legs above us, real as a day moon. Meanwhile, you're in the Amazon ingesting ayahuasca under the close supervision of a seasoned shaman. Hallucinations glow in the river before you. Here, I'm watching a man stare into a dahlia bush as if hidden truths will reveal themselves one orange spike at a time. No coincidence, the blue wing of the macaw on his forearm rhymes with the blue cornflowers and wild grass in the corner garden. All this color poured over everything isn't lost on me. 
Meanwhile, you're in colorless Iceland striking dead lava with a diamond point shovel. No coincidence how quietly the scaffolding collapses when the golden scarab of your dream arrives like a mirage on the road ahead of you, except it's me in my fanciest socks, back turned, face reflecting through a pocket mirror back at you. How swiftly a thing transforms into another thing. The infinite world rearranged in the circularly polarized iridescent light of the beetle's hard shell. If you tapped me then on the shoulder, would I be real? That's about as close as I can get to describing the sensation, but still it's no use. Even now at the bar, I'm drawing parallels between this ice cold pilsner and the sun. Oh, Emily. I know I'm here and you're there, but I keep turning in anticipation toward the door. Thanks so much for inviting me to share some poems. Bye. Hello everyone. My name is Mallory Tater and I am an instructor in our UBC School of Creative Writing. I teach poetry and I teach fiction and preparation for a career in writing. And I'm really thrilled to be able to contribute a poem to the Valentine's themed Prison Presents. So I'll just start with one poem today, a love poem I recently wrote for my sister. Lengths. Once we hang up our phones, I eat breakfast watch the world sink into a recession deeper than the ground is possible on CNN. Next, at the bus stop, I stand beside two women. Each pushes a stroller, their babies blanketed from rain. Twice, both women lift their blankets, adjust the hats on their babies' ears. They do not see each other. After this, I swim a mile in my bright, cracked community pool, bodies seemingly rashed and lonely. I stretch my hips, starfishing in the deep end. 65-year-old women in bathing caps and baggy t-shirts say hello, that I am welcome, but I have crashed senior hour. I wandered into a space not my own, because when you called me and said, you were going to be a mother. I was so sure and awake as anything. Everything that knew brightness saw me. I became someone daffy, adrift with hope. I could not see straight, and I did not want to. So I swim a mile with these women. We do not rush. I think you gave us the sun. Thank you. Hello, my name is Mandy Len Katrin, and I'm a faculty member at the UBC School of Creative Writing. And I'm going to read an excerpt from an essay called The Pleasures of Ordinary Devotion, which is in my book, How to Fall in Love with Anyone. I am reluctant to admit this about my own relationship for fear of its power to fetishize or to reinforce cliches. But after only a month of living together, I have come to love Mark with this new force that scares me. But this shouldn't be surprising. The more tightly our lives are intertwined, the greater the risk. What to do about the problem of love, I wrote in my journal. I thought I loved him a year ago. And I did, but now that love has a different tenor. It is deeper and rounder. It has accounted for the smell of his running shoes and the sharp edges of my impatience and the dog's shifting loyalties and all the demands of another body occupying a space that used to be mine alone. I like this version of love better. Maybe it's too much. I told him as we lay on the bed on a warm Saturday afternoon, naked and drifting in and out of sleep. Too much love, he asks. I nod. 
The first month of living together was comprised of so many individual moments of stress. Stress of writing a book, the stress of disarray and half-empty boxes, the stress of hurting two lives, or three if you count the dog, which you should, into one space. I heard myself say, our life is so good. And I realized that so many things have been transformed by this new pronoun, our. We bought a new table, walnut with nice legs, good lines, the kind of table you expect to have for a long time, an investment, a table of connotation. Eventually, you just want to buy a kitchen table with someone. He'd said to me months earlier when things were rocky, when living together was beyond the horizon. I guess we've arrived at that time. How about the couch over there, he gestures, and the table there? I stand, silent, looking back and forth between the two spaces. Roscoe wanders over and lies on the rug, trying to rest until we pick it up again and move it a few more feet toward the door. I have already told Mark the couch feels weird there, but he wants to try again. His eagerness to try, to imagine, to rearrange has left me mute. Hey, he says, walking over to me. I love you. I laugh and relent. I pick up my end of the couch. So many individual moments of stress, and yet I don't think of the time as stressful. I think of it as joyful. There is joy in taking turns reading The Atlantic over breakfast. Joy in finding new names for the dog. Tenderloin, chicken chunk, potato, monkey, goose, noodle, sweet pea, enchilada. Someone is here at home with us. Someone I love and whose company I love. The night we decided to move in together, I was so focused on my autonomy, on my separate life, which I wanted to protect and maintain. And now I'm content to be in this space, our space. The rapidity of this change has caught me off guard. I am besotted and embarrassed at my own good luck, at the capaciousness of my love for him. Still, I know I guard parts of myself. A studied evasiveness has its own limitations, Maggie Nelson writes in The Argonauts, its own way of inhibiting certain forms of happiness and pleasure, the pleasure of abiding, the pleasure of insistence, of persistence, the pleasure of obligation, the pleasure of dependency, the pleasures of ordinary devotion, the pleasures of recognizing that one may have to undergo the same realizations, write the same notes in the margin, return to the same themes in one's work, relearn the same emotional truths, write the same book over and over again. Not because one is stupid or obstinate or incapable of change, but because such revisions constitute a life. What to do about the problem of love? These are the revisions of my life, but it is ripe with the pleasures of ordinary devotion. You're listening to Prism Presents on CITR 101.9 FM. That was Sharita Warner, Mallory Tater, and Mandy Len Katrin reading their amazing writing on love for this special Fun Drive episode. If you want to support our show and the amazing work that CITR does, please head over to citr.ca donate to make a donation, receive some really cool swag, and help us get a new transmitter. Hello. Hey, I'm just going to come out and say it. I've been meaning to tell you this. I know that we've only been hanging out for some time, but you make our world so much brighter, and I have a really big crush on you, and I think I might be in love with you. Hey, sorry, the call keeps cutting out. Can you say that one more time? Never mind. I'll see you in class tomorrow. Make sure no voices get left unheard while they are talking about something they love. CITR is a place where people in the community can come together to talk about things they are passionate about. This year, CITR is raising money for a radio transmitter, which CITR cannot survive without because it literally transmits the radio. No pun intended. 
Help us make sure voices are being heard on the air by donating to CITR from February 2nd to 10th during the week of Fun Drive, and in return, you will receive a cool prize and will also help community radio survive and thrive. What's happening? I'm Owen Wilson, and I'm here to talk to you about a subject that's near and dear to my heart. The CITR and Discorder Fun Drive. CITR's great. So is Discorder. I don't know what to expect. I gotta be honest. I come in, it's like a little like I'm trying to get my bearings. There's cartoons, your mom. Radio's cool. So do the right thing. Donate now to the The CITR and Discorder Fun Drive. You'd be doing me a solid. Go to CITR.ca slash donate. Come on. Come on. Now, Vivian, I would love to hear some of your love poems and maybe a short story today, if you're willing to share. Uh, yes, of course. So this first one is called Keepsake. So Keepsake was shortlisted for the Peter Hinchcliffe Short Story Award. And I'm going to read an excerpt of it here. It's going to be published in the new quarterly in the upcoming issue. And this is a story about a desire for love of an absent parent. Keepsake. My father never believed in ancestral traditions. It was his hope we would never forget those glowing paper lanterns, which he called emotions, and the freedom that came with them. He emphasized family, Tuanyuan, especially in times of crisis, when my brother and I fought and he had to simmer us down with Bugs Bunny or reruns of I Love Lucy. We would crowd around the television set after takeout, which usually consisted of pang xie zhou, brown spaghetti, and chao fan, the Ming family favorites, and my brother would ceremoniously switch the screen on. It seemed that whatever my brother and I hated about each other would dissolve the moment the characters started chattering. Slowly, over the course of an episode, we would sit closer together and end up eating from each other's bowls even if we didn't like what we were taking. That was one way we reconciled and forgave each other. Come sit, my father said to my mother. He shifted on the couch, the leather swallowing his body. Mother did not respond. She scribbled away on the kitchen table at a shopping list, a teaching plan, notes from my brother's chess lesson. She tugged at the spaghetti with chopsticks and nibbled at the pencil. Alpo, he called. Start writing and sit here with us. She shuffled the papers again and crossed her legs. Derek, go tell your mother to sit with us. Derek stuffed one more spoonful of rice into his mouth, then yelled, Mom! She shifted her eyes a fraction from the page before replying, The TV is bad for your eyes. Dad, Mom said the TV! My father spread the volume bar until it was three quarters of the way filled. I glanced at my mother, who bent closer to her work and continued writing. My brother helped himself to more of my spaghetti. He shrugged, then leaned back against the coffee table. My mother did not move from her spot, even when the volume increased to 95, then 100. I crept away from the noise and opened up every single window upstairs. I wanted to give the sound a path to escape, somehow. The television set had been given to us by Aunt Fasse, who dropped it off the day my father threw out his back. It happened a few days after my brother brought home many bean bags from his school's activity day, and my father decided he wanted to become a world-class juggler. I arrived home from school to a flare of compresses, shantan, hot tomato soup, and my father groaning as he sprawled across the couch. His lower back was wet and red from my aunt's fussy prescriptions, and my mother was nowhere to be seen. My brother was already connecting the wires of the set, and he smacked the side of the television when nothing happened. Then my mother arrived with a bag of tong, hongnajiao, and mifen, and without a glance at any of us, glided right into the kitchen. My father's groans were muffled by the familiar clatter of rice poured into tin bowls. My father complained to my mother later, after my aunt was ushered home by my uncle, that her love was too buried. Even if she was raised in a strict family where purity and order were their, were their primary teachings, she should be more used to expressing more warmth by now. During his tirade, she kept staring down, her eyes only lifting when he started to shake her. Then he dropped his hands and curled onto the bed. 
when I kissed my father, the dried skin of his cheek flaked off and tumbled onto the silk covers. I looked for my mother, but she had already wandered away, her notebook dangled in front of her. There was no hesitation in her movements, just a direct arc that led her somewhere far away from us. The fabric around my father rearranged itself into a protective cloud. My brother's voice rang down the hallway through the half-open door, a free, bursting emotion that buried my possibilities of staying in the smoke and pulled me into the evening. I stood a while in front of the window before heading downstairs. The rice water bubbled and steam fogged up the kitchen, the tomatoes' acrid scent floating through the air. My mother bent closer to the garbage can, her chopsticks opening as she separated the yolk from the white, shutting them inside the metal shell. My brother and I were sometimes conflicted whenever my parents fought about who was right. For my mother, living was all about ancestral piety, Buddha's hand-me-downs, and brown robes that nearly swung past her fingertips. My brother and I used to try them on after school, when the blinds were down, smacking on her ten-year-old lipstick and strutting down the hallway. My brother would draw thick O's on either side of our cheeks and dab the remainder of the mixture onto the corners of our eyes. Taking turns, we would pose to our imagined paparazzi. We knew those silence camera clicks could only capture moments of our brilliance, but for several hours, with our robes silk across our bodies, we would smile and wave, our movements gleaming smooth and strong. With those same rivering strokes, I used to track my mother's footsteps up and down the stairs, peek into bathroom mirrors with her serene, rippling eyes. I caught her sleeves whenever I could find her stationary, in the kitchen, at the dinner table, on her bed. I pulled her down, stuck my tongue out, and puffed out my cheeks like the way Aunt Fossa connected to my younger cousins. Often, there would be no response. But once, before disappearing, she brushed her fingers against my knuckles. My brother was scornful whenever I ran to him, unable to restrain my tears. You're being ridiculous, he would say. You should know how she is by now. But in my father, I found a warm, comforting presence. He would gather me in his arms, sit next to me on the couch, and braid my hair as television babbled in the background. It wouldn't be anything fancy. He didn't know how to French or Dutch braid. When he was done, he would smooth my hair out and tie it back up again, strand by strand. That was how I fell asleep those nights. And when I awoke the next day, I would follow my brother downstairs for breakfast, ready to face the world once more. In the middle of winter, at midnight, I would sometimes hear someone singing outside my window. It had a lonely, melancholic warmth, one I was immediately attached to, having been afraid of the dark since I was younger. I left the window open one evening and caught a glimpse of the woman's dark hair and white dress as she drifted across the front yard and disappeared behind some bushes. Then her voice reached me again, and I shivered. The singing was loudest during the full moon, pausing and breaking, lasting till the few minutes before dawn. But whenever I stumbled outside, flashlights sparking the ground, I could not see her face, only the shallow cradle where her body lay a few moments prior. My brother claimed it was all an illusion, and when I roped him into the hunt with a bribe of four Kirkland chocolate bars and a $10 bill, he and I fell asleep before midnight and slept past our alarm. The windows hummed and we awoke, and the ice flowers dazzled. But she left no footprints behind, and my brother quickly lost interest in the pursuit. And that is an excerpt from Keepsake, which will be featured in the upcoming issue of the New Quarterly. Thank you for listening. I wanted to also share some love poems. Um, this love poem is to my grandfather, and it was published in Contemporary Verse 2, uh, and also is um, featured in my chapbook. Great Constellations Reflecting Grief and Joy. 1. He said, they buried you yesterday, in robes of communist desire, in trumpets bopping over the edge of a tobacco pipe. He told me he came home wanting. The figure in red caused a nosebleed. 2. Noticing a nosebleed, he packed his suitcases with toothbrushes, pajamas, two pairs of rubber socks. Sokso told him wasn't needed. The borders are closed. They were never real to begin with. 3. To begin with, he clung on to mother like driftwood on a lagoon, 
or blood to the edge of a killer sort, and pray to the idol of reincarnation. He knew you existed, even if you became a rabbit, a four-leaf clover, something that would never speak again. We put your photo in a living room. Four. Living kind of guilt. I didn't wish you a sunny in Philot. I forgot your birthday. I saw you for one hour every year. They said you had a heart attack in a silent house. Your footsteps stopped after a breath. They said you died drinking away your loneliness. Five. You must have been lonely after a mama's death. And Sook Sook moved to a high-rise apartment. I wish I visited you. Nasty teaches me the violin. After I finished my songs, you'd always say, Nso. Six. Your caged birds are croaking, and the framed portrait of a girl rustles between castell gleams of light. Father wraps himself in a black parka, his hands red with frostbite. I'm always indoors, next to the Christmas tree. It shines on your reflection. The walls are bare of sunning decorations as we bow our heads and sing for our supper. This next one is a slightly more hopeful one, I hope, about grandmother love. A love for my grandmother. Grandmother. You dance, arms in soft circles, with leaves crinkling under folded shoes, a smile on chapped lips. At once, a window flicking open, a hand unwrapping zhongzi, with careful, practiced fingers and slender chopsticks. Slide meat into my empty bowls. When your face rests in a doe's shallow grave, my shadows left into fire, my heart broken by winter, I had no strength for wings. But now, closing the panes, I remember your eyes in that prance. They were so soft, so warm, so full of music. I'm going to end with a very, I would say, extremely joyful, loving poem. And it's kind of like love for family and friends and just love in general, I would say. And this was published in The Fiddlehead, Abipakishu, and also featured in my chapbook as well. Soup days, pizza dinners, and other joyful moments. Smooth, soft kanji in mid-mornings before birds sing. Instant ramen for depressed, droopy afternoons with rejection letters, rain, and no-go moods. Next to videos of boops. Perfect companions for any storm. Soup is for love. My father knows. Without soup, there is no love. Questions my mother answered with four piping bowls of lobo, jiang, juro, happy feet, stomach soup. She knows. With this, we are together again. When I consume watermelon on dry days, without sufficient sweets to halt, tingling arms, superspinitis, plantricitis, and other Latin names of pain, my brother tells me pizza is the only way to start loving again. A slice of understanding between web, strong, we know, chat, singular individuals. Three, four, free talk, two, given to share. And even though it's too early to lay bare faces to the air or remove our quartery masks, now that I've realized the gold of Chinese blood is hot water, within warmth and homes, we can now find the perfect sushi dish to deal mahjong with. Two pie, converting to 3,000 friendship points. One dinner, translation to 30 beams of joy. And with joy, I leave that. <laughs> Glad we had a hopeful uh, progression. Thank you for listening. That was so beautiful, Vivian. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I'm so excited for that short story to come out in the new quarterly. We'll have to keep our eyes open for that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And Sophia, will you share something with us? Yeah, I would love to. I was kind of looking through all the poems that I wrote and I was like, none of these are really about love. A few of them are about heartbreak, but that didn't really <laughs> fit the vibe. But I think a theme of this episode isn't just romantic love. It's kind of love in all its forms. And I wanted to share this piece that I wrote that's really I think of it as like a, a tribute to my grandmother, my Ninit, who, yeah, who expressed her love to me through food. And so this is sort of a tribute to that. So this is a, a personal essay called Pulu Itam, or Black Rice Pudding, that was published in Maisonneuve in September. Yeah, so I'll read it for you now. 
Ingredients 1 cup black glutinous rice 4 cups water 2 pandan leaves 1 cup palm sugar half a teaspoon salt half a cup coconut milk Directions Take the old elevator to the 6th floor Knock on your grandparents' door Knock again, louder When your ninnit finally opens the door Smile and ask how she is Bend down and hug her, the only person in the world shorter than you. Savor the smell of her, dried flowers and spices you can't place. Let her press her nose against your cheek and inhale. This is her way of kissing you. Squeeze past the fridge and examine the magnets covering the dull white doors. They spell out cities like a road map. Las Vegas, Amsterdam, Sydney, Beijing. Think about where your ninnit came from, where a part of you came from and how far she traveled to end up here. Think of her at 16, a new wife, a baby only a few years away, how different her life was from yours across the ocean, across time. Sit on the cracked leather couch in front of the TV for a while. The volume is too loud, but watch the news with her anyway. Out of the corner of your eye, see her pull open the tab of her pill calendar. It's a Tuesday. There are so many colors and they disappear down her throat, chased with apple juice. Watch the way she laughs, a mischievous kid. Laugh with her even if you don't understand. Let your ninnit feed you slices of mango, green grapes, cashews, sunny D. This is how she tells you that she loves you. Two, in the kitchen, put a pot on the stove. Help your ninnit pull the gigantic plastic bag of black glutinous rice from the cabinet. You're not sure why it's called black rice when it's really purple dark purple, flecked with red and orange as if it's been streaked by the sun. Some people call it forbidden rice because in ancient China, black rice was reserved for the aristocracy. But here, in your ninnit's kitchen, it is plentiful. Add a scoop of the black rice to the pot and combine it with the water. Your ninnit knows the recipe in her bones, not bothering to measure, but you dutifully write down the ratio, four cups of water for every cup of rice. Fold the pandan leaves and tie them into a knot. Add them to the pot. The tropical plant looks like a stunted palm tree. Its long leaves are earthy and fragrant, like grass and vanilla, and they're used in the Southeast Asian desserts that you are just starting to discover. You especially love pandan crepes, which are the beautiful pale green of a clover. Your mom fills them with sweet coconut filling and rolls them up like spring rolls, and you eat them as fast as she can shape them, still warm in your mouth. Your mom tells you their name, Kwe Dadar. You used to think of dessert as the domain of white people. French pastries, Italian cakes, apple pie, an ex-boyfriend's grandma making chocolate chip cookies. You didn't used to think of your own Ninnit's sweets as beautiful. But then you grew older and you saw the rich purple of black rice pudding. You saw the Kwe Talam, vibrant green and white, Pulu Tai Tai, marbled blue like the ocean, rainbow Kwe Lapis. Your mom tells you that lapis means layers, layers you can start to pull apart. You don't think you've ever seen a pandan plant in real life, and the realization makes you feel hollow. It reminds you of how you felt trying rambutan, the fruit that your mom and Ninit love to eat by the bagful. Bright red spiky balls, your mom pulls them open with her long nails. The thick pieces of the shell peel away and reveal a fleshy white center covering a seed. You nibble away at it. It tastes like a sweet grape. You marvel at the amount of work your mom and Ninit put into eating this, and the way it makes them smile like kids. Your mom tells you that in Singapore, rambutan trees grow everywhere. You imagined the trees would be small, but when you see photos of them, they are sprawling, all dark green leaves and the pinkest fruit. Your mother tells you that she used to climb them, and you can see her now, your age, sitting among their sturdy branches, picking rambutans by the bucketful. Sometimes the fruit shows up here in Canada at the Asian grocery store, and your mom buys pounds and pounds of them. The shells stack up haphazardly on the kitchen table until she's lost in them. She opens each one like a gift. 3. Let the rice simmer for 30 minutes on low heat, stirring almost constantly for the last 15 minutes as the mixture thickens. You don't want it to stick to the bottom of the pot. The starch in the rice causes it to become soupy and then thick, like white people's rice pudding. 4. Add the palm sugar and salt, mixed to dissolve. This should only take about 30 seconds. Palm sugar is called gula malacca in Malay. It's made from syrup that comes from palm trees. First, they extract the sap from the flower bud of the coconut palm, 
Then the sap is boiled until thick and poured into bamboo tubes where it hardens into blocks. Your mom buys packages of palm sugar that look like buttery yellow moons. You didn't know that coconut palms had flowers. They are long and yellow, almost like wheat or outstretched fingers. When people think of Canada, they think of maple syrup. And you love maple syrup. It reminds you of fall and waking up to waffles on weekend mornings at your dad's house. In some ways, maple syrup feels like part of your identity as a Canadian, however prescribed that feeling is. But this identity never felt like it told the whole story of you. And then there's gula malacca, which is lighter and carries the sap of flowers grown on the other side of the world, and it is part of you too. So you watch it dissolve into the pot, sweetening the rice. Are you the rice? Are you the pot? Your ninnit has diabetes, hence the many colored pills, hence the carton of apple juice pushed to the back of the fridge that she hides from your mom. Her heart is pretty clogged up too, and she can't breathe well. She loves cooking. Food is everything to her. She was a chef in Singapore. Your dato claimed she catered Elizabeth Taylor's party, that Richard Nixon has eaten her sautés. Whenever you went to her apartment, there was something deep frying on the stove, spring rolls and samosas and fried chicken. Food was her livelihood and her love language, her reason for living. Now she has a hard time standing at the stove. As she stirs the thick purple rice, her breath is raggedy. All of this to say, you have a complicated relationship with the palm sugar that runs through her veins. 5. When the pudding is glossy and thick, ladle it into bowls and top it with a generous amount of coconut milk. Add a few shakes of salt to bring out the sweetness. As the coconut milk mixes in, the pudding brightens to a light purple, the color of the sky before a sunset. When you take a bite, you feel it spreading through you, warm and soothing and soft. Say, Trimakase ninit, sadap. Watch how she laughs. Sadap means delicious, and it's the word you most associate with your ninit. She loves it when you speak Malay, though you only know a few words. When she is cooking for you, that is when you try, when you stumble through her language, to tell her thank you. When your bowls are empty, put away the leftover black rice pudding in an old base cell container. Pour the coconut milk into a smucker's jar. Whenever you visit her, you eat it every night for a week until your stomach aches. When your mom picks you up, listen to her conversation with Ninit. You would like to eavesdrop, but you can't understand. Sometimes you recognize the Malay words for one or food, but mostly you watch your Ninit's hands swatting your mom's away from the stove your mom putting groceries in the fridge, doing the dishes. Your mom is a private person. She's lived all over the world and had great adventures and found her home here. A mother who insists she's not a tiger mom, but pushes you towards success as hard as she can. A Malay-Singaporean woman who wants you to be a Canadian girl, who didn't teach you Malay or feed you laksa. In this kitchen with the two of them, you feel intimidated. They were both born in the year of the tiger, 24 years apart, and their fierceness, their strength and independence has shaped their lives. You can feel them spark against each other, and you're not sure how you fit into this circuit, this matrilineage. 9. Repeat steps 1 through 8 as many times as you can. Every sick day you stay home from school, every holiday you come back from university. Savor it. 10. And before you go, hug Ninit again. Hug her as hard as you can for as long as you can. Please, for me. Tell her that you love her and that you'll always love her. Tell her to rumakase again. Memorize the way she laughs. Memorize the way she looks in her apron and her slippers with her wisps of dyed black hair and her spoon in the air waving you out the door. Please remember. 11. And then one day, lie on your bed and let yourself cry. Help your mom decide which clothes to keep. Help her go through the photos and news articles, the old passports and documents and photocopies. Make room under the bed for the boxes. Cry again because she passed on so quickly that you didn't get to say goodbye. 12. You will just have to wait. Wait to feel better or at least okay. 13. Keep waiting. Maybe I'll stop there. <laughs> Is that a horrible place to stop? It's intense, but... yeah. No, um, <laughs> I was going to yeah. make the crying face. <laughs> I'm like, I, it, it's so moving. It's so moving, friend. I, it's, yeah. Thank I, you. It's, I was feeling the emotions. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Honest, I was, 
blown away yeah thank you yeah just everything about it yeah there is one line it's like are were you the are you the are you the pot are you the rice are you the pot are you the rice are you the pot yeah i really love that line thank you um among all the other lines are very beautiful yeah 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 i'll leave it there and and people can read read it on Maisonov if they want and I swear it has a more hopeful ending than than I made it seem (laughs) yeah these these have all been such beautiful pieces and we actually have a few more readings from other students and faculty from the UBC creative writing program to share so let's hear those now This is an untitled glossa I wrote a few years ago. In glossas, you take a quatrain from another poet's poem and use their lines as the beginning or end line of your stanzas. No one ever told us we had to study our lives, make of our lives a study, as if learning natural history or music, that we should begin with the simple exercises first. Transcendal Etude by Adrian Rich. No one ever told us we had to study our lives, so instead we studied the flooded rice fields. From your bedroom window, they shone like small lakes. At night, we walked hand in hand through their straight paths. My pockets were heavy with coins all summer. We have tried to live perfectly. We have tried to make of our lives a study, as if learning natural history could make us more human, forgiving more, forgiving less. There are perfect moments. You standing against the river in my old denim jacket. Mountains aflame with their autumn colors. A family friend's pool, the sun setting over a distant lake and our screams, as if we were children. Our bed, the cat wedged between us and a typhoon beating against the window. It has become apparent that when learning grace or music, that we should begin at the end. Then we will know how to dream. The morning I saw you sitting on our bed, fresh out of the shower, hair dampening your collar, I fell in love all over again. The way your shoulders curved made me want to offer you my life. I want to indulge ourselves with the simple exercises first. It's the only way I know how to fall into water, to be shocked by its chill and yet to trust that my arms and legs will carry me to the surface so I can feel the sun, however weakly, shining on my face again, time after time, day after day. Diminutive of sheep. Spring has given way to an unforgiving summer. Heat rises from the pavement in sheets. My neighbors dry their bedclothes on the balcony. I wanted an ocean between us, and now I have it. Down the street from where I live, there's a seafood restaurant. I pass by during their lunch break and see the mother and son who own the place, haloed by yellow kitchen light. When I write on the blackboard, my students lean their heads together like top-heavy poppies. As I turn toward them, they drift upright, smiling. There is more sun this year, but I still sleep in the afternoon and think about you on my way to work. Spring has given way to an unforgiving summer. Heat rises from the pavement in sheets. My neighbors dry their bedclothes on the balcony. I am still feeling the reverberations of losing you, which I know is not the same as wanting you. Down the street from where I live, there is a seafood restaurant. I pass by during their lunch break and see the mother and son who own the place haloed by yellow kitchen light. I am writing the story you wanted, about the girl whose name is a diminutive of yours. When I write on the chalkboard, my students lean their heads together like top heavy poppies. As I turn, they drift upright, smiling. I wanted an ocean between us, and now I have it. But I still see you in each dark window. Hello, I'm Bronwyn Tate. I teach poetry in the School of Creative Writing at UBC, and I'm going to read a few sections from a long poem called How to Stay that speaks to love's changes and duration over time and amid the everyday. How to Stay. 
I turn my son to the light, check his calves for ticks. Fingers hover along downy muscle. We live in the woods now. I balance a limb of tufted evergreen, the wind set down in a vase made in Sausalito. We walked crosswise through rows of apples, so I don't know to name the dark red peel I remove in a single curling strip. My daughter lifts her face to kiss me, milk from my breast still purling her lip. Once I walked with my husband through a swamp, kissed between grips of cough. Now I roll to my side, novel hot flax pillow at my feet. Small fingers imprint my skin, indigo all over. How can we want what we have? Your flight through unripeness, my apricots, casts our blurred bodies into dusk. Thick, Wind-whipped snow subsides, suborned by sun. I talk invisible labor with Bridget, walk the crest of the hill where my cell gets signal. What ending any day is more real than the nouns I cook? Scorched tortilla, scrambled eggs. Scrape hair from the shower, mine longer now, his coarse some silver from his body. Slice thinnest shards of apple, leave the toasted almond on the floor where it fell, this hell of repetition in an imperfect body. What's a sucking pig, Owen asks as his sister drains the dregs of each breast. Their father brings me a cup of tea, weary or lazy, wary, what hums between us if the cord runs slack? fall back on our joy in these children we wanted, swollen with carrying them, my belly silvers softening. Meaning the fortress of solitude, my son says, we live in the solitude of paradise. Steep hill path, walk back in my own stubborn footprints, icy snow, bare ankle scratched, red where it sinks. Things happen elsewhere, we'll age here. We want to be known, to be free, to change. I change while my husband watches, belly loose where I carried our children. We change and don't see it, arc of habits indifference. In distance, maybe, sight, not recognition. Let the snow fall. Let the warm front hover and let the sleet fall. Let the roads ice over. Let cars glide past lasting damage we mostly elide. We've walked slippery hills, known the grip that fails, seen how knowledge prevents nothing. We begin, dark cookie set on a bookshelf for later. We begin, let her concussed cells speak, let his loose tooth fall out. Night, I tell my husband, unburdens, so let our daughter cry and then sleep. I watch each day for green that knows to wait out frost, walk in through the door, Vesper coughs, pukes into my hand, late afternoon sun, snow lit up, cotton fluff, too light to stick. No time to be sick, we carry the weight of what we want, trade time for paper. Bleach slate, change her shirt, wash her hands with rose geranium soap, hills slope, still brown. It's harder to document dreams when you no longer sleep alone. Light of another consciousness adrift beside you. Threads dissipate, orb weavers, wet web we step through. I thought elegy when I saw the crossword clue for ode, slowed to a standstill, handed some answer. Woods too buggy, sun comes early, late night at last, big moths vibrate against the dark screen of the open window. That was Clara Otto and Bronwyn Tate reading their beautiful poems about love. And that's it for us today. We hope these readings got you thinking about love in all its forms. 
For more information about PRISM, check out our website at prismmagazine.ca. And don't forget to donate to CITR at citr.ca slash donate. We would really appreciate your support to hit our goal of $20,000. And you can get some awesome swag and help us to get a new transmitter. We've been your hosts, Vivian Lee and Sophia Osborne. Join us next time for more readings and conversations with inspiring writers. I heard it's CITR. You can donate during Fun Drive from February 2nd to 9th to get cool prizes like lighters, wine glasses, bathrobes, and more. Donate to CITR to help community radio thrive. To donate, go to citr.ca slash donate. some members from CITR to name their one true love they found here. The News Collective. Indigenous Collective. The Accessibility Collective. Sports Collective. The Music Collective. The Intersectionality Collective. The Arts Collective. How did you first know you were in love? I could always be myself. And I learned so much. I think what I first noticed were the free accessible trainings. But what made me fall in love was the experience. I got to meet fellow radio nerds who were equally passionate about alternative media, and that changed my life forever. These collectives couldn't continue without the support that CITR provides, so we invite you to donate to citr.ca slash donate.